Episode 32, Advanced Civilization. Hello and welcome back to the How to Play podcast. This is your host, Ryan Sturm, coming to you from the How to Play studios in Western New York. The How to Play podcast is all about learning and teaching games. In each episode, I provide a full explanation to help you learn and learn to teach another great game. For more How to Play episodes, special episodes, teaching guides, our discussion forums, and to help support the show, visit our website at www.howtoplaypodcast.com. Also, be sure to visit our affiliated podcast on the Dice Tower Network at dicetowernetwork.com. Now let's get to today's episode. Hello everyone, thank you for tuning in. This is your host, Ryan Sturm, and today we're going to talk about Advanced Civilization. And this episode was recorded on October 9th, 2011. But before we get into that game, I have a big announcement for the show How to Play. It's been a long-time goal of mine to have all of the How to Play resources easily available from one central hub. And this goal is now a reality. I'm so proud to announce the unveiling of the new HowToPlayPodcast.com. As soon as you can, like right now, like run to your computer if you're at your iPod, or say you're in your car Just pull over to the nearest library to get to the nearest computer so that you can check out the awesomeness that is the new howtoplaypodcast.com. Over the last several months, I've been working to put this together. I couldn't do it on my own. I don't have the expertise. And fortunately, I had two people in my game group who do web development for a living that volunteered their usually very expensive time to help me with this project. A big thank you goes out to Paul McPerian and Michael Schroeder for the development of this website. Also, Mike Schroeder is a gaming blogger. He has a blog called Board Game Dialogue, that's D-I-A-L-O-G.com. If you like reading reviews and discussion about board games, please go check out his website. So after you visit howtoplaypodcast.com, you can go check out Board Game Dialogue. But what will you find at the new howtoplaypodcast.com? Well, easy navigation of all the episodes, as well as all the teaching guides are accessible there. It's easy to see all the games that are available. There'll be postings about any how-to-play news, links to all the videos, links to everything how-to-play. And one of the links I added is with each game page, I added a link to the pictures at BoardGameGeek. So you know how I always tell you to look at some pictures of the board and cards. Well, each game games page will have a link to pictures that you can use as well as to the teaching guide so you can just get everything all in one place. So I hope you will go check that out and that it's something valuable to you. If you have any feedback about the website, please tell me about it there at the Guild. All right, now let's get back to today's episode about advanced civilization. Advanced civilization was designed by Francis Tresham The original Civilization was designed in 1980, and the advanced version came out in 1991. And it plays well with a wide range of between 4 and up to 8 players. Did you say you're going to cover Advanced Civilization? Isn't that game like 20 or 30 years old? There's lots of other better Civilization games that are a lot shorter, and I don't even think I can get that game anymore, and I don't think anybody would play it because it's so long. Listen up, Mr. Whiny Pants. You are wrong, wrong, wrong. Let me take your questions one at a time. First of all, why should you play this game? Advanced Civilization 
is the best Civilization game that's out there, still, 30 years later since its release. It's better than some of these newfangled, shorter Civilization or Civilization light games that have come out. Nothing can match the feel of a full game of Advanced Civilization. You really get the feeling of building up the Civilization and going through history. Oh yeah, what about Through the Ages? My favorite podcaster, Jeff Engelstein, says that Through the Ages is really the awesomest. Well, Through the Ages is a really good game, but you know what? It really feels like a solo game. You're optimizing, you have to you know, keep your military number up to the same level as the other players, but it doesn't have the real social interaction that you get with this game. There's diplomacy, there's negotiation, there's backstabbing, and what there's not is a ton of downtime and waiting for other players' turns whose actions really mean nothing to you and you just sit there and eat donuts. You're involved the whole time. It's more epic than even an 18xx, more satisfying than Twilight Imperium. It is the epic civilization ultimate game that you've been looking for and that can fill that hole in your heart. I'm not going to lie to you. This game is going to be 10 to 12 hours long, but it will be 10 to 12 hours of the best gaming that you've ever experienced. And when I experience an epic game like this, it's not even so much about winning the game. Yes, I'm going to try to win. Yes, I'm going to do my best and try to learn the strategy. But it's more about the ride that this game provides for. The ups and the downs. Even if you fall out of the leader race, you can really just enjoy the experience that is this game. So, Mr. Whiny Pants, what was your next question? You can't even get this game anymore. It's been out of print like forever. You know what? There's a ton of copies of this game out there. And it's not that expensive to get. So for those that don't know, this game originally came out as Civilization, and then about 10 years later, sort of a add-on package came out as Advanced Civilization. So in order to play this game as described, originally you would need that Civilization box as well as the Advanced Civilization. But really, all you need is that Civilization package, and then you can sort of upgrade it yourself without uh, getting the extra expense of that advanced civilization package, which is quite a bit more rare, and thus the price of it is quite a bit higher. So you have three options if you want to get this game. First of all is to go on eBay and try to get a copy of Civ. The market price for that original civilization game, probably between 80 to 100 bucks. More than the typical game you would buy, but not really that much more. Now, in order to make it advanced civilization, the advanced civilization is a bit scary, as those go for about $200. But you know what? You don't need to buy the package of advanced civilization. All it has is two decks of cards, and one of those decks of cards can be replaced by a player aid, and the other one is eight sets of cardstock you can print at your local office supply store, and you're good to go. You've just saved yourself 200 bucks. Option two of how to get this game is ask around your game group. If your game group is of any reasonable size and your gamers have been playing for any length of time, you've got somebody who has this in their collection and they're probably dying to play it. So just ask around. Option three, print and play it. There's a beautiful redesigned board for this available. All this game really needs is that board, chits for all the players, two decks of cards, and one two-page color chart, 
and you're good to go. That's it. And like I said, you can replace one of those decks of cards with a really nice player aid. One of the easier print and play projects out there. It'll probably be cheaper than getting it on eBay, and it will look nicer than an original copy. So there you go. If you want to play Advanced Civ, it's not that hard to buy, make, or find a copy. There's plenty of copies out there. Um, uh, was there something else? But nobody's going to want to play one game, like, all day. Well, here's what you do, Mr. Whiny Pants. You send out an email, or you talk to your friends at Game Group, and you tell them, like, a month in advance. You pick the day, and you say, I need at least four players to play the greatest game you've ever played. We're going to play Advanced Civilization. It's going to take 10 to 12 hours, so they know what they're getting into going in. But it's a great game, I'm dying to play it, and it's going to be a ton of fun. I bet even you, Mr. Whiny Pants, could scrounge up three friends who are willing to play an epic, awesome game with you. The people in my game group, they don't, they don't really like me. Well, it seems like you have a lot of social issues that you need to work out before you play this game. Let's get to the complexity rating. I know what you're expecting. You're expecting me to say double black diamond. Well, it's not. This game is a black diamond. This game really eases you in in the first few turns to guide you through it. All the mechanics are very simple and intuitive. Unlike a lot of the games I've talked about on the podcast, say Brass and Through the Ages and Kalis and Tigris and Euphrates, this is a game that someone can jump in the first play really just dive in, learn the basic mechanics in that first few turns, and really understand and enjoy what they're doing. And that's part of the beauty of this game and how it really holds up. With a minimal amount of components and mechanics, the designer, at a time when there weren't very many innovative or creative game designs, created this wonderful experience and this great rule set, which is why you owe it to yourself to get a copy of this or find a copy of it and play it. Some of you may be wondering what the difference is between civilization and advanced civilization. Well, advanced civilization isn't any harder than original civilization. It's just sort of a reworking of the original game with some tweaks, which for a lot of people, including myself, believe that these tweaks make for a better game. There are some stalwarts who will tell you classic civ is the way to go. But the three big changes that happened to the game were they simplified and, I think, improved the trading rules. They added to the deck of commodities to make trading a little bit more interesting. And they added to the civilization cards with a bigger variety of technologies, as well as the fact that anyone can get any of the technologies, whereas they were limited in the original civilization, which I think is one of the big sticking points with those people who enjoy classic civilization. I have only played Advanced Civilization, but I really can't see playing the game with less commodity cards, less of those civilization cards, and those wonkier trading rules. I just, uh, I can't see how I would find that a better game. So for me personally, that's what I recommend. Get a copy of Civilization and upgrade it so that it's Advanced Civilization ready or find someone who has a copy of Advanced Civilization. So let's get into the show. We'll start with our introduction, get to the meat of the rules and the hamster to give you basic strategy. At the end, I'll have some footnotes on some of the cards in the game and maybe give you some suggestions on keeping the playtime down as much as possible. 
as always I recommend having that game as a lot of you probably don't have this game you may want to just get online and look at some of the components for the game well did I convince you mr. whiny pants are you ready to learn this game um, uh, I don't have time for this because I need to go look at all of the 2345 Essen releases uh, that are coming out well you could look at those hundreds of games that most are probably going to be junk. Or you can learn how to play this classic game that 30 years later has a huge following and is still respected by gamers as one of the greatest games ever. Not only that, it inspired the famous computer series as well as countless other board games all using that technology tree idea and working with that. It's really a landmark game. And not only is it an important game, ludologically speaking, it's also one of the most fun games to play ever. So, Mr. Whiny Pants, how about it? Mr. Whiny Pants? Ooh, there's a new Dominion expansion. Yep, I'm sure there is. Part 1, The Hook, what the game is about. Welcome to Advanced Civilization. This game spans nearly 10,000 years of history. You are a small band of people hoping to grow and advance to become the most significant civilization in our world's history. Your small band of people begins the game as a single population chit on one territory of the large map board. Each turn of the game, which represents approximately 500 years of history, your population chits will double and then have the ability to move to one adjacent region. The civilizations will quickly spread out to take as much of the valuable territory on the map as possible. Each turn, the chits will continue to double, and eventually the civilizations will decide to build cities. Cities are built by having six population chits on a territory with a city building site marked by a black square, and exchanging those six square population chits for a circular city token. After the initial expansion sprawl in the first few turns, the building of these cities becomes the next goal for the civilizations, because the number of cities that you have at the end of a turn determines how many commodity cards that you will receive, and commodities are the main source of wealth in the game. The commodity cards can then be traded to other players, in that you're trying to acquire as large of sets of the same commodities as possible in order to make those cards more valuable. Those commodity cards can then be cashed in to purchase civilization cards. These are like technologies that the civilizations learn. The civilization cards are key for three reasons. They give your civilization special abilities. They're worth victory points at the end of the game. And their acquisition is one of the requirements to advance on the Archaeological Succession Track. Or AST for short. The what? The AST, or Archaeological Succession Track, is essentially a progress track with 16 spaces divided into five ages represented by colored bands that are each two to four spaces long. At the end of each turn, each civilization will move one spot to the right on this track, and each spot moved is worth 100 victory points. But in order to be able to enter the next band on the track, you need to have met that age's requirements. The requirements are the number of cities that you have and the number and types of your civilization cards. 
If you approach a new age and do not meet the requirements, your token will bounce and stay in the same spot. Whenever any player reaches the end of that track, there are 16 spaces and normally they bounce at least a few times, so it's about 16 to 20 turns, then the game is over and the scores are calculated. Your score is determined by your progress on that AST track, the value of your civilization cards, and by your final number of cities. And the player with the most points will be the greatest civilization of all time. So to boil down the object of this game succinctly, you'll first expand to get cities, and then by having cities, that will allow you to collect commodity cards. And then those cards are cashed in to get the civilization cards or technologies. And you want those civilization cards and cities so that you can keep progressing on that archaeo... Oh good, they're not going to gong. On the archaeological succession track. And the person who has the best score from cities, civ cards, and progress on that track will win the game. Which would be a lot easier if you didn't keep getting blown up by volcanoes, having your population decimated by epidemics and famine, face non-stop revolts, civil wars, and pirates, and have to somehow get along with your neighbors who keep greedily eyeing your best territories and may at any moment decide to come in and kill for it. Hey, nobody ever said it would be easy trying to become the greatest civilization of all time. Part 2. The Meat. How to play the game. Okay, great. So now you know what your goals are. Build cities, get commodity cards, use those to get civilization cards to advance on the track. But now we need to look at the turn. Now, I don't want to frighten you, but the turn has 13 phases. Did I frighten you? All right, well, let's break it down. There's only really seven things that are very important, especially there at the beginning. So let's talk about the important parts of the turn and the typical flow of how this game normally works. The basics of running a civilization. Okay, so a lot of stuff happens on each turn. Like I said, there are a whole lot of phases, and how the phases work is all of the players go through the turn one phase at a time. We'll all add more chits to the board, and then we'll all move. So we go through those phases together as a group. Okay, so the most important seven things that happen on the turn is first thing, you expand your population, which means you get to add more chits. At the beginning of the game, if you're not looking at the board, it's a board that's divided up into regions centered around the Mediterranean. And in random order, the players will choose which civilization they want to be. And each civilization has a starting position. You're going to get your one chit and put it on that starting region as the beginning for your great civilization. And at the beginning of your turn, as I said before, your population chits will double. Well, kind of. I kind of lied. You get to double if in a region you have only one chit or two chits. If you have one chit, you will get one more chit in that region. If you have two, you'll get two more. If you have three in a region, you'll get two more. If you have four in a region, you'll get two more, and so on. So that's why it's important to spread out to allow for the growth of your civilization. So the first phase is you will expand your population, adding one to every region with one and two to every region with two or more of your chits. 
And then the players will move their population chits. Each chit can move one adjacent region. And so as I said, players are sort of trying to spread out early on and claim their territory there early. And for the first three or four turns, that's really all that's going to happen, is you're going to double spread out, double spread out. Because you're not going to want to build a city because it's going to cut into that exponential growth that you are experiencing. Usually around turn five or so, players decide to start building cities. And how you build cities is you put a group of six chits onto a region with a city site represented by a black square. And after movement is over, you can replace those six chits with one of your circular city tokens. And so since players have been building up, they might be able to do two or three. And after they build those cities, they are allowed to draw commodity cards. Now there are nine stacks of commodity cards, and it's good to have more cities because the cities that you have tell you how many stacks of cards you get to draw from. If I have two cities, I get to draw one card from the one stack and one card from the two stack. And if I have three, I get a one and a two and a three. And the way the commodities are set up is the higher numbered commodity stacks have more valuable commodities. So not only do you get more cards when you have more cities, that sixth and that seventh and that eighth card you get just become more and more valuable. So you'll collect those cards after you build your cities. And then this step probably won't happen for six or seven turns. Then players will be able to trade because they'll have enough cards where it will be worth it to trade. And even later on, players will have enough in commodity cards to be able to purchase civilization cards. Each of the commodities has a value on them, and you're able to cash those in to buy those cards that give you special abilities. And then the important thing that happens at the end of the turn is you slide to the right on the Archaeological Succession Track. And you'll eventually hit a wall. There's alternating gold and silver bands. And once you get to that first silver band, you have to have the requirements. And that first requirement for the first band is to have two cities. And if you have that, then you'll slide over. If not, you'll bounce and you'll stay on the same square. And those are the major things that happen on a turn. You're going to expand. You're going to add more chits to the board. You're going to move those chits around. You're going to build cities, then you'll get commodities for the number of cities you'll have. You'll trade, players can buy more of those civilization cards, and they'll move on that track. And as I said, the first four turns is really just adding more chits and moving your chits. And then maybe turns five and six, players start building their first cities. Once we get to about turn seven, then you're really getting into these full turns that'll probably last a lot longer, maybe 20 to 40 minutes per turn, because you really have to get through all those cycles. Players have to add all those chits, decide where they want to move them. They'll be getting a lot more cards. They'll have to trade, which becomes a lot more interesting. Within those commodity cards are calamities, so you have to resolve those calamities and decide which pieces blow up. And then players will be buying civilization cards, moving on the track, and then you're really into the game. And what you'll find is there's a maximum of nine cities in the game. And getting to nine and holding nine is really pretty hard as these calamities keep knocking probably, you know, a few cities over each turn. And so what you will end up in is these cycles of crashing and then rebuilding up to seven or eight cities. And then some of your cities will get knocked over and then you'll rebuild up again. And just trying to maintain and maintain better than the other players in order to keep getting more cards do better in that trading phase to be able to buy more techs so that you can come out the winner. 
And that's a basic synopsis of what happens in this game. So hopefully you have an idea of your general objectives, the basics of a turn, and the flow of what you can expect from this game. Now I'm going to launch into the full 13 phases of the turn. The 13 phases of the turn! So it sounds scary, there's 13 phases, but for the first four turns, you only really do four of them. Add more chits, move, move the AST, and that's about it. As we get later on into the full turns, that's when the turns start getting a little more longer and complex. So I'll go over all of them from top to bottom. As I said, all the players go through each of these phases, so we all do phase number one, collect taxation. Most of the time, it doesn't matter in what order the players do this, so everybody just sort of does it at the same time. And you're going to want to do that to keep the playtime under 12 hours. If everybody did everything separately, it would take forever. So keeping everything as much as possible simultaneous in these phases is necessary to keep the game length reasonable. Well, maybe not reasonable, but you know what I mean. Okay, so phase one is collect taxation. All right, one of the mechanics of this game is that you have a limited amount of tokens available to you. The tokens are your chits, and the chits are two-sided. The front side, the darker side, has a little person on it, and the back side, the lighter side, has like some arrowheads on it. The front side with the guy represents people, and the back side represents money. Now each player will have a certain number of these depending on the number of players. Often it's 55. You also have a little player aid in front of you that lists all the phases, and on the right side there's a box that says stock, and on the left side there's a box that says treasury. To start the game, you're going to have all the pieces with the man side face up. And that is the number of pieces you have available to you. And those are limited. You can only double your people so much, eventually you're going to run out. And these tokens are also used for money that you earn in the game. Once you have cities, you need to collect taxation. And how you do that is you take some of the tokens in your stock, and you flip them over to the money side and move them over to your treasury. So if I had three cities, I would take six of my men, flip them over to the arrowheads, move them over to the left, and put them in my treasury. Now that's good because that gives me a little bit of extra money to build ships, and I can use them for civilization cards. But it's bad because it depletes my stock. If I have too many of my tokens over there in the treasury, I'm not going to have enough men to put on the board. So managing this balance between spending your money and having guys in your stock is an important part of the game. So that's phase one. Flip over two of your men for each city that you have and put it in your treasury. Phase two, expansion. Make babies. Double all of your stacks, or at least your one and your two stacks. If you have more than two, you only get two more guys in each of those regions. So you can see how everyone can do these things at the same time. There's not really any decisions here on those first two steps. Phase three, census. This is simply a count of the number of your population chits that you have on the board, and that's marked on a spot on that AST display. And the reason that that is done is because whoever has the least amount of people gets the advantage of moving last. It's very good to be able to see where everybody else goes before you decide to go. So whoever has the most chits on the board marked by that census will be moving first. If there is a tie, ties are broken by what's called AST order. 
on that archaeological succession track, the names of the different civilizations are listed from top to bottom. And that order is important. It's called archaeological succession track order. And that's used for a lot of the different phases. When it asks who goes first, you default to that. But in movement, it's very important that the census order goes first, and if there's a tie, you break it with AST order. Okay, phase four. See, we're cruising. This won't take long. Ships. Now, this happens in census order as well because it is an advantage to be able to see where your opponents are going to build ships because they'll tip you off as far as where they're moving. Now, in the first few rounds, nobody cares. And a lot of times, honestly, nobody cares. So it's good to be able to do it simultaneously unless someone says, hey, can I see where you're going to build your ships first? I really need to know that before I build my ships. How do you build ships? Well, in order to build a ship, you're going to need to spend two money or sacrifice two guys in the region adjacent to that sea area. Or you can split it. You can pay one money and one guy. And then you get a ship and you can put it in that sea area. If you already have ships on the board, you can either destroy them at this point or you can pay one in order to maintain them. You can pay that either through money or by sacrificing a guy. You have a limit of four of these ships, and these are helpful for transporting your men. Next is movement, and this is done in census order if somebody asks for it. Otherwise, do it simultaneously as much as possible to speed things up. If you do movement one at a time, the game is going to take longer than 12 hours. But if it is important and you have the census order on someone, you have less people than they do, then ask them to move first. And movement is very simple. Each of the tokens can move one adjacent region. Also, ships can pick up and move people, and this is a quicker way to get your pieces around the board. Each ship can hold up to five pieces at one time, and they can get on the ship, and the ship can move up to four sea regions. Though an important note is that if you transport your men on the boats, they're not allowed to move before or after they get on that ship. The ship movement is their movement. And the ship can do as many drop-offs and pickups as it wants, as long as it only moves four spaces. But you have to drop off the people. You can't leave them on the boat. But I could say, pick up three people, move them one region, and drop them off. Pick up two other people, move them three more regions, and drop them off. That would be a legal move with the ships. But what you can't do is have people ride two ships to make a big super move. Tokens may only ride on one ship per turn. So you can see how those ships really allow you to move your men around more quickly. The restriction is that at the beginning of the game, until you get a certain technology called astronomy, you're not able to move into the open sea. You sort of have to sail your boats just around the coast. Later in the game, when you get that astronomy, you can make huge jumps and really move your people across the world very quickly. So that's movement. Move as many of your pieces as you want one adjacent region. And let me tell you a little bit of a trick. You know how I said that the pieces have two sides. What I like to do in order to keep track of things is when I add my babies to the board, I add them to the board and then I flip them over. And that way I know which ones I added to. Otherwise, sometimes you can get confused. All right, which ones did you double up and which ones did I not? And then instead of just flipping them back over, I leave them arrowhead side down. And then when I move my pieces, after I'm done moving them, I flip them over. Because that's very important so that you don't double move your units. 
And it's a good trick for remembering which ones you have doubled and which ones you've moved. When you double, flip them over, and when you move them, flip them back over, and that way you'll remember which ones have done which. Okay, phase six. This is something I've ignored until now. Conflict. War. There is war and blood in this game. How does that happen? Well, each of the territories have a population limit based on how livable those regions are, and those are marked in each region in a small circle, usually between one and four. That tells you how many tokens each of these regions can hold and have those pieces survive at the end of the turn. For example, say we have a region with a four in it. I can keep four of my green guys in that region. Now only two of them are going to reproduce and I'll have six there next turn so I'm not really maximizing the territory but I can live there. Also you can coexist in this game. In that four region I could have two of my green guys and my neighbor could have two of his red guys in that same region and everybody's happy because we can all survive. Now let's say my neighbor decides he wants that territory. So he moves two more of his red tokens, and he has four red tokens in there, and I have two green tokens, and we are above the population limit, and there's two different colors. Somebody's going to die. There will be war and bloodshed. I love the combat system in this game. It's so simple, you know exactly what's going to happen. Here's how it works. Whoever has the highest stack in the region gets to kill first. So say we have that situation. There's four red against two green. Red has more. So first of all, one green is killed. And then one red is killed. And you just alternate killing back and forth. Kill one, kill one, kill one, kill one. But you only do that until you get to the population limit. Then they can all survive, so they decide to stop fighting. So in this case, it's four to two. The population limit is four. A red kills a green. Now it's four to one. A green kills a red. Now it's three to one. You stop because the population limit in the region is four, and we have four tokens, three of one color and one of another, and the conflict is over. The dead tokens go back to the stock, and that would be the result. Now, if there were a tie, say both red and green had three tokens in that four region, in that case, they would kill each other at the same time. So we'd kill a red and green and take them off, and now we, we could stop. There would be two red and two green, and conflict would be over because we're at the population limit. Let's say you want to knock over a city. You can do it. It's kind of hard, but possible. You need, since a city takes six to build, you need seven tokens to take it down. And so if I want to take down a city, I can bring seven tokens into the region. And what would happen is the city would turn into six tokens, and then we would have normal conflict. I would have seven and you would have six, so I have more than you. So I would kill one of yours, you would kill one of mine, I would kill one of yours, you would kill one of mine. And we would do that until we are at the population limit. If you knock over a city, you get a little bit rewarded from the game for doing that. You get a random commodity card out of the person's hand, and you may take on your little player aid, you can take three of the men in your stock and flip them over to become money. This represents the pillaging of the city that you have just taken down. But that's how conflict works. Now let me just put in a caveat right here. This is not a game about war. You don't want to come in trying to knock everybody over. 
because it's one of these situations where if Red and I start to get into a blood feud, since there is no way to get any sort of advantage really in battle, especially early on in the game, we're going to take each other down equally. And that means if Red and Green are taking each other down, then the other five are just going to be able to exploit that and grow and grow, whereas Red and Green are killing each other and taking each other out of the game. So there are times where it makes sense to take down a city or to take a valuable spot or to hop into a territory. But early on in this game, it's really just about building up. And if an opportunity becomes available, especially once we get to more of the middle of the game, then you should jump on it. I'm not one of these people who says, oh, you should never attack anybody. I think that would make for a very boring game. But you have to be careful. If you do this too early, you will lose. But that's how conflict works. Whoever has the fewest tokens has to take a guy off, and then the other person loses a guy, and you keep going until you're at the population limit. If you have a three-way battle, and you can have that, you do it the same way. Whoever has the fewest tokens removes first, then the second fewest, and then whoever has the most, and you just keep killing guys till you get to a limit. You could have a three-way coexistence. That is possible. Okay, next, after conflict, of course, is constructing cities. So, you know, if someone wanted to get in your way and knock over a couple of your people so you couldn't construct a city, that they had the, they have the ability to do that. But if you remain by yourself and you have six tokens on one of those territories that has a black square, then you can take them off the board, put them back in your stock, and put a city on there, which is going to allow you to draw those commodity cards, which you'll need to get technologies. Now you are able to build cities on territories without black squares, but it's harder. You have to pay double the number of tokens. A made-up term we use for this is a wilderness city because you're building a city in the middle of a forest or something. And you know what? This isn't a terrible thing to do, especially if you have a lot of extra population. So you just get a territory, get 12 guys on it, cash in those 12 guys, and get your city. Well, that's phase seven, construct cities. Phase eight, Remember that population limit? This is where you check to make sure everyone is at or below that population limit. At phase 8, if anyone is above the population limit, let's say I had 5 of my green tokens in a region that could only hold 3, well then 2 of them would die at this point. And this will happen sometimes just because you have extra guys and they have nowhere to go. Or maybe you were storing extra guys there as a defensive measure, um, but any extra guys you have there will die. And you notice that this happens after you build cities, of course. So you're going to have that big stack of guys that's six, and it'll probably be more than the population limit there, but you'll be able to build the city before you have to kill your guys because of the population limits. An important note about building cities is that once you build a city in a region, it can no longer hold any stray tokens. You can keep stray tokens there, but they will die at this remove surplus population step. The population limit for a region with a city is effectively zero until that city gets destroyed. Not counting, of course, I guess, all the people living in the city. But what this means is that you've made this sort of an urban area, which is why it can't support the tokens, which are represented as farmers, which becomes an issue because you need to balance these regions of cities and having areas with tokens. Because now we're going to check for city support. And this means that you have to have at least two chits on the board. These represent sort of your farmers, uh, the people who bring in the food for your civilization. You need to have at least two of those on the board for every city that you have. 
won't be a big deal early, but once you start getting six or seven cities, that means you'll need 12 or 14 chits in order to support that many. If you don't have enough, you'll have to start reducing some of your cities. Here's how reducing your cities work. Say I had six cities and I only had 10 population chits left. Well, I'm short by two. So what I have to do is knock over one of my cities. And remember how I took six guys to build that city? Well, I'm not going to get six guys back. I'm only going to get back the max population limit of that territory. So say it was a two territory, I could knock over that city and put my two population chits there. All right, I can stop now because at that point, I now have only five cities and I have 12 population chits now. And so when you reduce these cities because you don't have enough support, you do it one at a time because probably by the time you do your first one, uh, you'll have enough chits because you have less cities and more chits on the board. And for sure, you'll probably have it uh, by the second time you do it unless you're, you're really in awful shape. Just remember, you must have two chits per city. Keep that in mind before you go crazy building eight or nine cities. You're going to have to count your chits and make sure you have... I'm doing really good pronouncing chits. you got to be careful with that one. Um, you got to have... If you're going to build eight or nine cities, you're going to need 16 or 18 chits, respectively. So that's phase eight. You kill the extra guys, and you check and make sure you have enough farmer support. All right, phase nine is collect commodity cards. As I mentioned earlier, you get one card for every city that you own, uh, but there's actually nine stacks. So if I have five cities, I get a card from each of the first five stacks. I get a one card and a two card and a three card and a four card and a five card. Hooray! All right, so what are they? Who cares? Well, in each stack, there are two different kinds of commodities. For example, in the one stack, there are hides and there are ochre. And this is sort of where it becomes sort of a set collecting game because you want a lot of the same kind of commodity because it's sort of a quasi-exponential ratio that the more that you have of a commodity, that the more it's worth when you want to cash it in to buy a civilization card. For example, if we look at the hides, if you have one hide card, it's worth one. Two hides cards are worth four. 3 are worth 9, 4 are worth 16, 5 are worth 25, 6 are worth 36, and 7 are worth 49. Now, when we get to the 2 cards, all of those numbers are basically doubled. 1, 2 is worth 2, 2, 2's are worth 8, 3, 2's are worth 18, 4 are worth 32, and so on. And so when you get all the way up to, say, the 7 stack, for example, we have spice. One spice is worth seven, two spices worth 28, three spices worth 63, and four is worth 112. And so you can see how quickly the value of these increase as you go up the stacks and as you get more of them. That's where the trading comes in. Of course, the interesting part of the trading is that mixed in those trading cards are calamities. In every stack except the one stack, and nobody cares about the one stack because they're not worth that much, but all the other stacks from two to nine have one to two calamities in them. And so you might end up drawing one of these calamities. And if you do, you have to sort of keep a good poker face because your objective will be to try to trade these away to the other players. How are you going to do that? Well, we'll talk about that in just a second. First, a couple more rules about getting those commodity cards. Whoever has the fewest number of cities gets their cards first. 
and that's a nice little advantage for a loser because sometimes like the one stack or the two stack will simply run out of cards and so that allows that person to get some of those cards some of those little dorky cards that the people who are getting seven or eight cities aren't going to get those but you know they won't really care but it kind of is a little mini balancer next when you're collecting those cards you have an option here remember all those treasury chits that you were building up you can use those to buy ships but another thing that you can do with them is if you collect a whole bunch of them if you get 18 you can spend 18 of your treasury chits to buy a card from the nine stack and every player has that option so if you can get to that 18, it's really a good thing because nine cards are pretty valuable. It always stinks if you have like 15 or 16 or 17 chits and you're just a few shy from buying that nine card because then your man stock, that doesn't quite sound right, but it is what it is. It's your, your man stock. Your man stock will be really depleted if you have all those money just sitting there in that treasury and you don't do anything with it. But that's phase nine, collecting those cards. And for the first few turns, you're not going to have enough cards. You need at least three cards in order to trade. So usually it takes to about the sixth or seventh turn before players have enough cards because they've now built cities, and now they have maybe three or four or five cards, and they're trying to you know make some sets in their hand. Here's the rules for the trading. I really recommend a time limit. It's not really officially in the rules, but unofficially everybody tells you you should have a time limit. Otherwise, trading could go on forever. Plus, it adds this really fun tension. I had this clock that had the digital display, and it was up there so everybody could read it. Everybody could see, all right, there's 37 seconds left, especially when people are trying to get rid of these calamities right before the last second. So the rules for trading are brilliant they're really brilliant there's so many parts of this game that are brilliant between the simplistic combat system and this excellent trading system and of course the technology tree which was so influential but anyways back to the trading how does the trading work so everybody's going to have like five or six cards or whatever and they want to trade them because it's so valuable to get a large set especially of a valuable commodity like from the seven deck there is spice and resin and if you have four resin that's worth 112 so the game really encourages you to make a lot of trades in order to try to make these sets the fun part of it is you're probably going to end up with some of these calamities well how do you trade for a calamity who wants to trade for barbarian hordes well here's the fun part when you trade you have to trade a set of three you must tell them what two of those cards are the third one you can say whatever you want, but you don't have to tell the truth. Most of the time, people just say the two that they're going to give, and then they just assume that they're going to hose you on the last card. Uh, but, you know, you can talk about what that third card is if you want to, you know, try to convince them here and give them something good or, you know, promise them that it's not a calamity even though it is. So you can say, all right, I'm going to give you oil and timber. And they might say, all right, I'll take the oil and timber for a, a grain and a salt. And so you would just say those two cards, and then you would throw whatever that third card is in. 
and in this way you could secretly trade one of those calamities. Now the great part about trading is this is an open five minute trading. Nobody takes any turns or anything like that. So say I made that trade and I ended up with a Barbarian Hordes card which is going to rack my civilization. Now I'm going to be very interested in making a second trade to be able to pass that Barbarian Hordes onto someone else. Now of course they are trying to desperately get rid of uh, a piracy card that they have in their hand and so we might end up just trading those or they might not have anything and I might get lucky or my opponent might decide that I look a bit desperate and shut the trading stall down for that particular turn and this trading phase is really one of the greatest parts of this whole game so it lasts for five minutes you have to trade sets of three you can trade as much as you want you have to be honest about at least two of the cards you can trade more than three cards in a set but for most people, they aren't willing to risk it because there's no guarantee of honesty. If you trade five cards, you only have to be truthful about two of them. Now, an important rule about these calamities is most of them you can trade. There are a few of them which are what's called non-tradable, which really stinks. When you draw them, they're non-tradable. It says right on the card, non-tradable. And you have, you're just stuck with them, and they're going to do bad things to you, and there's nothing you can do about it. Point out to your players, specifically before you start this trading phase or before you start getting these cards, the non-tradable marking, just to make sure that people don't trade the non-tradables by mistake. Now, there is sort of a, a booby prize rule, I guess you would call it, in that if someone gets a whole bunch of calamities, you can only be affected by two calamities in a turn. And so there's almost like a shoot the moon sort of mechanic there, is if you, you end up with three of them, you know, you might as well just keep trading as much as you want because you can only get hit by two of them now the two that hit you are random uh, but there is at least that so that you know you don't completely get wiped out of the game so then that's it the timer buzzer goes off everybody you know one at a time you go down the list of the calamities you start with the level twos the non-tradables happen first see all right anybody have volcanic eruption it may have treachery famine superstition you go down that list of calamities and you resolve them anyone who has any of those calamities must reveal that you can't like hide them or save them for next turn and then bad things happen most of them say that you lose a certain number of unit points or ups for example famine says that you lose 10 ups but a lot of times these calamities don't just affect you, they affect everybody. Then it says you get to divide up 20 UPs to be lost to the different players. So you get to divide up that how you want. There's a max of eight per player. So you could say, all right, you lose eight, you lose four, 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 four. You know, if there's somebody that you're really mad at. What are UPs? UPs stands for unit points. The simple calculation is that each chit that you have is one UP, but also your cities, if you want to blow up a whole city, that's five UPs. So you just go through, and if you have to lose ten, you would pick off, you could pick off ten individuals or a city and five little tokens, or you could reduce a city if you wanted to. And how that would work is the city is worth five, you would reduce it down to its population limit. Uh, so say something had a population limit of two, you could reduce that city, it's worth 5, you're bringing it down to 2 chits, 5 minus 2 is 3, so that counts as 3 of the chits that you have killed. So that's one of the ways that you can distribute how you want to kill your chits. So this takes some time when you have some of these 
calamities in that everybody's trying to figure out, you know, which of their guys on the board they want to kill where. The funny thing is, is these tradable calamities, when you trade them to people, normally the person who trades it to that person is immune from all the nasty effects of that calamity. So you actually get a little bonus for um, being a mean guy and giving another guy the calamity. I'm not going to go through all of the calamities. They're pretty clear. They're pretty straightforward. Uh, I might talk about a couple of them in the footnotes, uh, but just go through the rule book and they're, they're pretty clear about what they do. After you do all the calamities, guess what? You have to check for your city support again. After all those, you know, you've blown up all those pieces, you still have to see that you have two chits per city. So if I have six cities, I have to have 12 chits. If I don't, I'm going to have to reduce some cities until I am at that legal limit. Now, finally, after we've done all the bad stuff, and there could be, you know, zero calamities in it around, especially early. As you go later on in the game, it can really range from having one on a turn to, you know, four or six on a turn. They can all really bunch up, and you're going to have a bunch come out on a turn. Bringing you from, you know, thinking you were doing well with eight cities and knocking you down to three or four. But that's all part of the fun that is civilization. Now, finally, we get to phase 12, which is the fun part, which is shopping. You have those commodity cards, and hopefully you have a good set of them. If you don't, you might save them until next turn. But you're going to use those sets and go shopping. They have a value based on how many that you have. So if I have four cloth that's worth 80, I could go buy a Civ card. The Civ cards range in price from 45 all the way up to 250. And there's 24 of them. There's also five different colors of them representing five different categories. There's crafts and sciences and arts and religion and civics. And this is where that tech tree part of the game comes in. If I focus on the crafts, which is the orange colored cards, if I buy a orange card, say cloth making, it gives me a discount on any future orange cards that I buy. It's a 10 point discount. So the more crafts I do, the better I get at learning new crafts. Also, almost all of them have some sort of special ability. For example, looking at just that cloth making, cloth making's ability is that ships are allowed an extra move. I guess, you, you know, you make stronger sails. So now you can move five spaces with those ships instead of four. And they all have different effects. Some of them are minor. Some of them are quite strong. And I'm not going to go through what all of those do. I really want you to be able to explore those on your own. But the other important things about these Civ cards is that you need certain colors and certain numbers of them in order to get to the different ages. First, you have the Stone Age, which you don't need anything. And then you need two cities in the early Bronze Age. And then the late Bronze Age, you need three different colors of cards. And then with the early Iron Age, this is the hard one, you need nine total of these Civ cards. And you need all five colors. And then for that final age, the late Iron Age, you need a certain point total in order to advance into that next box. So paying attention to using these discounts really helps you build up and build up and get more of these Civ cards, and the game sort of accelerates in that way. It's important to note also some of these Civ cards have prerequisites. So you actually have to have one particular card before you can get that other Civ card, particularly those red cards. So pay attention to those prerequisites. After people buy their Civilization cards, 
and really do that simultaneously. Otherwise, it's going to take forever. And even better, uh, have people start to figure out what they're going to buy while you're blowing up all the pieces with the calamities. A couple more things about buying those civilization cards. One, you don't get any change. So if I spend three die on pottery, which is 45, I'm not going to get anything back. So you really want to try to maximize your bang for your buck. You can buy as many of those as you can afford, but you don't get any change. You can use those treasury tokens. They're worth one apiece. So if you're just short a couple points, then those treasury tokens can really help you do that. When you spend those, those go back into your man stock, as I like to call them, ready for populating. I guess that's what the man stock does, populates. Man stock! Hello. Then after you're done buying, you have a limit of eight commodity cards in your hand. So the game sort of forces you to make some purchases. You're not really able to save them all up and make one big buying turn because you don't want to have to discard cards. If you're above eight and you're not going to spend the money, you have to ditch them. Try to buy cards so that you can get under that hand limit of eight. So then after players are done buying, we get to the final phase, phase 13. Advance on the AST. Simply slide one spot. If you are entering a new age, you have to check to make sure that you meet the requirements of that new age that we've talked about already. And then you'll start the whole sequence all over again. Like I said, the first five or six turns will only use a few of these phases. But once you get to turn seven or eight, you will have to go through all of these. And you'll probably be at about around a half an hour per turn. If you can keep it to a half an hour per turn, then that's a pretty good click. And you'll keep going till somebody lands on that final space of the track. And then you're ready for final scoring. End of game scoring! So the person who gets the end of that track is not necessarily the winner because there's several components to the scoring. You get 100 points for every square you are on the track. So the person who ends it will get to 1,600. Uh, but, you know, if you're a couple behind, 1,500, 1,400, you can certainly catch up. The other huge scoring category is each of those Civ cards that you have bought is worth their face value in victory points. So that cloth making was worth 45 points. That also means all those discounts that you're getting make earning victory points cheaper, essentially. So if you're getting all those orange cards and you get all those discounts, it makes it easier for you to acquire those cards, which are essentially victory points. Also, you get 50 points per city at the end of the game. You know, you might have five or seven cities. That'd be 350 or so points, up to 450 points. If you have any cards or tokens at the end of the game, you can get their value in points. That might be a few points. And then you total that all up. Somewhere around three to 4,000 will be a winning score. And whoever has the most points will be the winner of the game. Part three, the hamster. How to win the game. All right, some basic advice for your first few games of this. Number one, and this is really important, I really recommend that you don't build cities on the first four turns of the game. That will really get you behind in the game because you're going to cut into that early exponential growth. 
this might mean that you might have to bounce against that first wall on the track if you're one of those civilizations that has an earlier first ban than some of the other ones. Don't fear it like it's the end of the world. Everybody probably will bounce at least a couple times. If not, you're going to have to do something about it. But don't make silly decisions about how you expand or the cards that you buy just based on worrying about bouncing. You want to try to avoid it, but know that it's not the end of the world. Next thing, early in the game, as you're expanding, before you expand, you might want to talk to your neighbors about, all right, where are the lines? Let's draw up some lines where we can be peaceful. Because as I said earlier, if you get into an early conflict, an early feud where people are fighting back and forth, then that's going to take the two of you probably out of contention of the game. There will be opportunities for conflict probably later in the game or even in the middle of the game, but in the first seven or eight turns, it's probably not the thing that you want to do to start off this game. It's a long game. It's a marathon. You don't want to start slugging um, early in the marathon. The next tip is if you are going to get involved in conflict or you are looking to what your neighbors are doing, it is very important about moving last because they have the advantage to see everywhere of where you're going. And especially if they want to decide to attack you, that's the prime position to go and attack other people. So be aware of who is moving last. The next thing is a little bit of what we talked about. One part of this game is managing the tokens in your stock, in your man stock, like I'm calling it. Oh, this is your man stock. In your man stock and your treasury. It, you don't want to get too many tokens hung up in that treasury. If you have them, you either got to get up to 18 to buy that nine card or get rid of them so that you can you know, use those tokens. You don't want to not be putting pieces on the board because your man stock isn't large enough. Next, about trading. This is a game, it's, you know, if you're an introverted person, you gotta kinda just go for it here. You have to get aggressive in that trading. You can't really sit back. You can't fear the calamities because the set building is so important. If you don't build sets because you're not making enough trades, you're not going to do well. So you have to get involved. You have to make a lot of trades. Don't fear the calamities. Although I will tell you, the first trades are always generally better than the second trades. Um, or pay attention to the reactions that uh, the players make after the first trades before deciding to make that second trade. Also, if that clock is ticking down 12 seconds on the clock and someone seems really desperate to make a trade right before the buzzer, that might be a good time to decide to pass, depending on the cards in your situation. If you think you're just going to be swapping calamities, then that's fine. If you don't have a calamity, you might want to pass on that. So there is that tension between that need for sets and the danger of the calamities. But if I think if you clam up too much, you're not going to be able to get enough civilization cards. I think that's one of the great parts of this game is you sort of have to read people. You have to read the body language, see what happens in the trades. And it's, it's really um, one of the most exciting parts of the game. The next thing is don't get frustrated. 
your cities will get knocked down. You know, they might get knocked down over and over again. But it's not too hard to build them back up. And if you set a target for at least seven, seven is a reasonable amount. You know, if you can get eight or nine, that's great. Get up to seven cities, so you're getting seven cards each turn. That's really the target you want to set so that you're getting enough cards so that you can keep pace in this game. And later into the game, pay attention to who's getting ahead on that AST. This game does have interaction. This game does have ways to get in other players' faces. And once somebody starts to pull out to a lead, especially after you pass the halfway point of the game, it may be time to stop playing nice, whether that's knocking down a city or so, or making sure that he's the one that you decide to trade with first when you have an especially nasty calamity or a total boycott of trading. There's enough interaction in this game that you can try to draw that leader back. That's all the advice I have for your first games of Advanced Civilization. I really hope you're able to give this one a try. I don't think you'll regret it. It's an amazing experience and one of the greatest experiences you can have over playing a board game. So have a great time building your civilization. Part four, footnotes. All right, a few footnotes here, uh, a few small rules. First phase is taxation. If you don't have enough men to flip over, for each city that doesn't have enough taxes to pay, you're going to have a revolt and you're going to give up a city to another player. So just be aware of that. It's sort of an unusual situation, um, but that's what happens if you don't have enough man stock to pay your taxes. You have a revolt. Here's an important conflict tip that I didn't get into, but you may want to as you get into it being relevant. Remember the rule that you need seven tokens to take down a city. And remember how important it is to be able to move last. Let's say red is going first against me, and they have to move first. If they move seven tokens into my city region, and I see them do that, I may take two of my tokens and put them in to defend my city. Here's how that will work. I'll lose my two guys and he'll lose one. But now he'll be down to six tokens. And six tokens is not enough to take down a city. So he will lose all of those tokens. So you can throw in some units to defend a city. Now the bad news about that is that once there is a city in a territory, no units can survive there past the remove surplus population step. But it may be worth throwing a few tokens in there to steer away someone from attacking one of your cities. This is where the advantage of playing last is so critical. If I'm going before someone I think is going to attack me, then I'm going to have to just throw a few tokens in there to try to defend the city. If I'm going after them and they decide to attack a city, then I can stop their attack just by throwing two tokens in there. If you're attacking someone that you want to be moving after them, Next, setting up the commodity card stacks. There are some very specific directions in how those are set up. There are a few cards counted out that you count those out of the top, so you make sure that there are no calamities in the first few cards equal to the number of players. The tradable ones get shuffled in the bottom half of that, and the non-tradable ones actually get placed right on the bottom of each stack. So pay attention to those. That rule happens... Again, when you reset the 
calamities into the decks after people have played them, those immediately go back into the stacks, shuffled in and back on the bottom of the stacks. The non-tradables go on the bottom, making them a little more rare. Also, one thing I thought was odd is that final square doesn't have a number in it or anything. It doesn't have a prerequisite on that final square on the AST. All right, what about those Civ cards? Um, you're probably looking for some advice on which ones to buy first. Well, you know what? I'm not going to tell you. Uh, you know what? You could go on Board Game Geek and they would tell you which ones they thought were the best. But I think a, a fun part about this game is to read them and just to figure out for yourself which ones do you think are the best based on the discounts that they give you and the abilities that they give you. And some of them, it can be situational depending on the particular situation that you are in. Some of them can be better than others. There is probably two different ways to go about it. You know, you could get a lot of the cheap ones hoping to get more discounts later on in the game, or you could try to shoot for a really powerful one hoping to use that powerful ability early in the game and, you know, not worry about those discounts, get those a little bit later on in the game. But as far as which ones to buy first, well, I'm going to tell you to figure that out for yourself. I think that's part of the joy of playing this game. The Calamities! Uh, remember with those tradables, the trader a lot of times is immune. And I just love that about the game is that uh, the trader gets a little bonus or, or the trader gets to decide how to punish you. It really adds to the, the interaction and the fun of this game. One calamity that really seems confusing, you know, you have to read it about seven times for it to make sense, is the Civil War disaster. Basically, here's how it works out. You're going to get to keep 35 of your unit points, and the rest of them are going to go to the player who's losing, decided by whoever has the fewest unit points on the board. And how that is chosen is you pick 15 unit points. Remember, chits are one, cities are five. And so you pick 15 that you want to keep. And whoever's going to get all the stuff is going to pick 20 more points that you are going to get to keep. And you'll represent that by just flipping those over. And you'll have some left over, maybe, I don't know, 5, 10, 20 points. And the beneficiary will get all those points, those cities or chits. You'll take yours off, and they'll get to put their new color on there. That is usually how it plays out. Technically, the player gets to choose whether they want to keep the 35 or the other ones. But usually, I mean, people don't have much more than 35, whether it's, you know, 40 or 50 or, you know, 55. So usually keeping the 35 is almost always the best plan. And that's how Civil War works. Hopefully that makes a little bit more sense. An important rule about buying those civilization cards. You may buy two or three of those on a turn, but one thing that you need to know is that the discounts you get from the civilization cards cannot be applied until a future turn. So when you buy multiple cards, you don't get the discounts right away. You only get the discounts for the cards you already have. That's all the nitpicky rules I'm going to get into. I didn't get to everything, but I think that's enough certainly to get you going. Now let's talk about the expansion map for this game. You may hear people talk about a western expansion map and you know that that's a lot of people say you have to have the western expansion map. What is that? Well, the western expansion map adds uh, another panel onto the side of the board and it's you know it was like made out of paper and now it goes on eBay for like $100. So if you really want it, you really should just try to print out that little panel you can print it out pretty much on BGG, or you can 
also what I would recommend is getting the full size redesigned map that has the Western expansion included on it. And that really looks nice. Another thing I will recommend to you is a map that I discovered called The Glory That Was Greece. And if you're like me, it's kind of hard to drum up eight people to play a 10 to 12 hour game, but four people is doable. This Greece map is a really nice map designed specifically for four players. So uh, I'll put links to that there at the guild. Also, I will put session reports that I've done for the games that I've played the last two years. I played full games. They have lasted, you know, 11 and 10 hours. But I have one that's, you know, just a real quick summary and another one that's a really full detailed summary. And looking at that might give you a better feeling on how the game is played. And one of them is using that Greece map. How do you play the game with four or five players with just the regular board? Well, there's a dividing line on the board, and so you can play on either the west or the east side. And I spend a lot of time stressing over which side to play. You know what? They're both fine. Don't stress. Just pick a side and go for it. Um, so that option is there available to you. But know that you shouldn't play the whole board if you're playing with just four or five players. It also depends how many tokens you have based on the number of players, so check out the rules. As far as speeding up the game, well, this is something that I am still trying to work on. The first game I played, I think, was about 10 hours. The next one was about 11 hours, so we didn't do a great job of speeding it up. But I think now that we're more familiar with it, we've played it two years in a row, I'm hoping next time it will speed up because there definitely hits that point where people start hitting the wall about eight, nine hours in. One thing I think we'll implement is sort of a game director, and that person will be in charge of, you know, saying the rounds and keeping people on pace for who's moving and who's buying and just keeping the game moving. All right, we're in the trading phase. Okay, now we're moving. It's yellow's move. Can we move simultaneously? And that sort of thing. Keeping as much simultaneous as you can is very important. I think I might even consider talking to my group about, you know, if players can all move at the same time, including, you know, buying their ships in that movement phase to just streamline it and speed up that movement phases that can kind of take a long time. Be sure to do that five minute trade. You don't need any longer than that. And I don't think you would really want to go any shorter. I think that's a really good time limit. Another thing I started to pick up on that we could have done better is it takes a long time to resolve those calamities. And when someone else is resolving a calamity, it's really a good time to be picking out what you're going to buy, which uh, which of the civilization cards you're going to buy, because that can take a long time to add up the amount that you have and figure out which techs you're going to buy. And so people should really kind of be multitasking. You know, some people are figuring out their civil war. Everyone else can be planning out their buy to sort of keep things moving. But, you know, that's my goal is next year, my 2012 game to hit nine hours. We'll see if I'm able to do it. But speaking of length, I think that uh, the length of this show has certainly run its course. I hope that the description of this game has possibly inspired you to try out this great game because it really is a great game and deserves more people to play it. I would love for it to be in print. I'd love for people to be playing this more often because it's worth playing. It's worth the 10 hours. Even if it takes 10 hours, it's a wonderful 10 hours. So invest some time in finding a copy 
get your friends and give it a try. I think you'll be in for a wonderful experience. But I'm going to shut the lights off here at the How to Play Studios. Once again, thank you for all of your support. Thank you for continuing to listen and for continuing to provide feedback for me. It really motivates me to keep going forward with the How to Play podcast. Here we are in just over our second year. We just crossed our second anniversary. Still going strong and we keep growing two years in. And lastly, I implore you to please check out the new www.howtoplaypodcast.com and see the work that we've put into there. Bookmark that site and keep checking back to find out what's new. And I look forward to coming back to you in just another short month. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Ryan Sturm of the How to Play Podcast. That wraps up this episode of How to Play, but be sure to visit us on our website, www.howtoplaypodcast.com, for all the How to Play resources, to discuss the show, to contact me, or to show your appreciation for the show with a PayPal donation. I count on your support to help keep How to Play growing. If you use and love the How to Play podcast, I need your help. Show your appreciation by making a donation, spread the word about the show, and just let me know what you think about the show there at the Guild. Thanks again to you, the How to Play listeners around the world. And until next time, I hope you will learn, teach, and play great games. The How to Play podcast is part of the Dice Tower Network, the premier board gaming media network, featuring Ludology and the flagship podcast, The Dice Tower. For more information on these shows and much more, please visit www.thedicetower.com. I knew it! I knew it! I knew this was just another game about trading in the Mediterranean. Oh, look at this game. It's about Loch Ness Monsters.